Welcome to Project Chatter, the podcast where PPM experts from various sectors talk about the latest trends. Listen to Val and Dale as they talk about tried and tested best practices and share their unfiltered thoughts about the industry. Whether you're here to learn how to progress your career, improve your project control skills, or just want to hear an Aussie and South African rant about projects, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Project Chatter podcast with your hosts, Dale Fung and Val Matthews. Innate construction software transforms the way owners, contractors, and engineers manage projects and programs. With Innate, you get an integrated project controls platform that solves challenges in every phase of the capital project lifecycle. These are field-tested solutions that give stakeholders the information they need to minimize risk, improve operational efficiency, and control project costs. Innate, transforming the way the world builds. Learn more at innate.com. That's I-N-E-I-G-H-T dot com. Project Chatter is sponsored by JustDo.com. JustDo.com is a cutting-edge next-gen project management portfolio platform which doesn't force you into a project structure or hierarchy. Think of it as the Minecraft of project management systems with integrated task-based chat, Gantt, Kanban, and much more. It's the only 21st century real-time platform available today. In this episode, we talk to Richard Plumery about best value performance management and palms up approaches. Uh, Rich is an international speaker, published author and subject matter expert on project delivery and performance management. Rich is a technical board director for the AACE International, which sets the guidelines for many of the industry practices. Rich has unique experiences outside and inside industry as he has started and sold several businesses, including a tactical supply business, sports performance coaching business, teaching speed, power, agility, and balance. This business coached hundreds of professional athletes and prepared over 200 college athletes for the NFL combined. He also runs a foundation to support developmentally challenged adults in the local community, and he has learned to apply many of these learnings from his unique experiences to capital project industry management and leadership. Rich has been with ACOM legacy companies since the late 80s, and his experience covers every aspect of project delivery, including risk management, planning, scheduling, cost control, change management, budgeting, engineering, design, construction, construction management, operations, contracts, finance, estimating, and performance management. What a great guest we had. Now, we didn't have Dale and Martin on today, so it was just me, Han Solo, it, but I thought we had a great engaging conversation about what really is valuable to the project, not high performance, but best value performance. So we talked about a risk-driven approach, which I thought was fantastic. We also talked about the 10 commandments of what we should have in projects, which I thought was great. But Rich is a very engaging and very experienced speaker with a great history and a really non-linear approach to how we should manage projects. I really enjoyed this conversation. But as we say, sit back, relax, and enjoy the pod. Hello, project people. Welcome back to a brand new episode of the Project Chatter podcast. It's always good to have you with us. And we're back without Dale this time and Martin, but that nevertheless, we have a great guest with us today and I will be introducing this topic. Uh, Rich, Rich Plummery, it's great to have you here. How are you, sir? Great. Good to be here. Appreciate the invite. No, the pleasure is a wine. And uh, this topic is great because, you know, I really do want to get into the value of projects. And we've talked about this with a few podcast guests. We really want to get into the detail, but before we do, Rich, we'd love to know a little bit about you. Where did you start? How did you get into this? Uh, what's your story? Pretty unique start. I uh, I was, after college and stuff, I was bumming around as a waiter and a bartender and really and trying to play a little baseball and um, ended up, my dad introduced me to a construction manager who was going to be starting this project. And uh, so he says, well, you can come out there, you can work for, for me, you'll be a uh, timekeeper. I had no idea what a timekeeper was. He says, well, it's fine. It, was, it pays okay. And, you know, it's out in the middle of the Pacific. You'll love it. And, uh, you know, it'd be a nice time. So they pay for all your meals, your room and board, everything. You're set. So he um, got me a sign on to do that. Went out to the island. It was a half mile wide by two miles long. It's a military base out in the middle of the North Pacific that has like four trees on it. 
it's a coral-based island called Johnson Atoll. And it's where they stored all the chemical weapons from World War II um, wow. after it was over. So we were there to build a plant to dispose of all those chemical weapons um, over the years. So it was a big project over time, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars there turned into a multi-billion dollar project over time. And uh, I went out there and got surprised to get off the plane and get fitted for a gas mask right away. And uh, things I'd never done before. Mm. Just saw those things. And so I started as a timekeeper for a couple of weeks. And I said, this is boring as hell. I can't do it around this sitting badge badge paper all day long. So um, I asked the project controls guy, hey, can I do something for you? And he taught me how to do quantity tracking, how to do you know, some scheduling, a little bit of cost uh, management and uh, develop, you know, a knack for it and kind of really enjoyed, I, I enjoyed a, learning a program called Smart Database, which is about the time of DBase3, um, mm. way back when, and easier to program than DBase3 and that. So I ended up building the cost uh, control system through it and really learned it that way. And that's a great way to learn it when you're seeing where all the things are coming through and how the system works. And I had help from a guy in Denver to kind of guide me through it. And it was great experience and spent two years out on the island uh, with the, there were a thousand of us on the island, 500 were military and there were a whole 50 females out there for us 950 guys. So wow. it was a pretty unique, unique place. And after that, I'd interviewed for a job on the project out of Honolulu. So I got to move to the Honolulu office for um, eight years and managed the project from Honolulu over that time. And then moved back to Denver where I'm from and back at now and managed the program for the company um, design-wise across five sites in the U.S., including Johnson Atoll. And so got some really unique background there. We're in contracts management, got to do contract negotiations, learn from really top-notch professionals there and um, learn project management, learn claims management, because of course, when you have big projects, you have change management and claims and set up those systems and really learned a lot in the different roles and um, really enjoyed it. I uh, left the business in did a claims management firm because I seemed to enjoy claims and uh, did that for a while. And then I got a call from my, my neighbor and he says, hey, I want you to talk to to me about this thing. I met these guys down at a defensive driving school down in Arizona, and they uh, they want to start this tactical supply company for the military. So, oh, that's interesting. I've never done anything like that to talk about. So the guys were from SEAL Team 6, not just from wow. SEAL Team 6. They're the guys who started SEAL Team 6. These were the what they call the plank owners, the original members that started the counterterrorism unit. And then went on to start a unit called Red Cell. Red Cell was a unit that tested all the security measures worldwide. So they would do crazy things like capture generals and, um, and steal submarines and nuclear subs and take them out to sea and just radical stuff. And there's a book about them called Rogue Warrior and their leader is called Richard Marchenko. He just recently passed, but um, had some great books on that. There's actually a video game about some of their exploits and, and things they do called Rogue Warriors. So, uh, pretty interesting working with them. I learned a lot about working with teams, right? So that they're the best of the best in forming teams and learning, you know, clarity of task, clarity of role, um, you know, how those things form it, how you build trust within the team and, and you know, add on new members and take members off and so on and so forth and how you accomplish those things. So that was great learning. And um, we made a ton of money real quick with that because it happened at the time just before 9-11. So all of the uh, troops that were going out uh, to help um, uh, go to Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan all over the Middle East there needed special gear. And these guys had developed that special gear. So we ended up selling that company just about a year later 
And uh, I took the money from that and started a sports performance business, which is off the wall. Uh, but my daughter was a young kid and kind of learning uh, how to play soccer and she was growing really quickly. And the growth put her in spurts where she got all gangly when she was running in that and lost a lot of speed and coordination and soccer, you need that. And I got her with a coach that understood the fundamentals of, of speed and agility training. And I said, wow, this is a great thing for kids because she improved radically. She went from the, uh, the fifth team to the first team in a matter of months, uh, just wow. because of those improvements. So um, we opened that business. We catered to a lot of professional athletes. So some of the top professionals in the world came to us and uh, learned from my coach, who's Lauren Lando, who's now the coach of the Denver Broncos uh, strength conditioning program there. Um, so he was a big attraction for a lot of the athletes. We trained 250 some college athletes for the NFL and the combine and so on and so forth. So really interesting learning that part. I sold that business about six, seven years later and came back to oil and gas uh, projects again. And hadn't been in oil and gas, I was on the process side with chemical uh, demilitarization stuff, but not so much oil and gas. So I learned that business and that was really interesting. It's probably some of the more complex work you'd ever worked with them, right? Because of all the, the process equipment and stuff you deal with. So I got to learn that piece to it and um, enjoy that and then, I just started thinking about, I was always passionate about earned value. And I took some of the things I was learning and said, how can I fix some of these problems that we have with earned value, right? So I started to apply some of these things and worked with my project controls team in, in Denver that I had. And uh, we came up some, with some solutions and I wrote a, a paper about it. And that um, paper got recognized uh, by a number of people in AACE who I wrote it for, and they encouraged me to, to do more that way. Um, as I was doing writing those papers and doing presentations on it, I was growing within the company and, and actually uh, grew to work on the teams that actually turned around projects and programs and businesses within it. So uh, learned the operation side of the business and and that got drawn over to now to the part of the business I'm in now, uh, where I run the America's Project Delivery Group. And uh, that covers project controls, project management, quality, uh, risk management, number of different areas, everything around project delivery, including supply chain and so on and so forth. Mm. So collaborate with all those. And we do about 32,000 projects at any one time in the Americas. And I have about 4,500 wow. uh, project managers that I've certified in the, in the Americas as well. So big program, but the, the impetus behind it was learning to be really good at something and then talking about it, presenting it, writing about it, interfacing. I joined the, the tech board for AACE and got involved with those really high level professionals that really knew the, the craft and, and was able to learn more and more from them and uh, employ some of those things in what I did. Mm, that's incredible. What a great uh, story. It's definitely not a, long, a linear story. It's a, it's a story with yeah. lots of turns. And uh, I love that because it's, you know, is. you pick up, yeah, yeah. You pick up a lot of those different angles of um, project and then you can apply it back to projects. And I find, um, at least in my experience, the people that have been a little bit more rounded have done different things in their careers. Um, like I'm ex-Navy. So I, I get it. Oh, and yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I did a bit of defense work and then I went on to oil and gas renewable, did a few different things. And then I come back to kind of transport infrastructure, which is my baby. And uh, I could apply different learnings and obviously lean on AAC as well. And, and I think that gives a richer experience and, and a far better practitioner if you've got these, these different angles, but um, what a great story. I loved listening to that. Uh, it was really, really interesting, uh, especially the, uh, the SEAL team. What a what an amazing turn, and and to, even before September 11, that's a, you know, everything changed obviously after that. But uh, but to be be involved in that and come from a you know a pretty humble spot, you know, timekeeping. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I'm the same as you. Timekeeping would have been a yeah a day job, and I'd be like, all right, I'm ready to get out of here now. What are we doing next? <laughs> 
But look, uh, you know, let you, when we talk about uh, performance management in any project, you know, everyone talks about high performance and, uh, you know, I think we've got it wrong there, but you talk about value performance and uh, even best value performance, which is, which is interesting language. And I think language is important when we talk about these things. What do you mean by value performance? What's your kind of take on that? It's, you know, you hear a lot about earned value and how hard it is and how expensive it is to put on projects and then to programs and that. Right. And it's because, you know, you're trying to measure everything and do it all um, in a uniform way and over a period of time with lots of people. And you get false reads with all these indicators. SPI can be mm -hmm. manipulated. It gives you bad reads. So you're constantly spending hours and time looking at those things. I wanted to find something that provided better bang for the buck. Right. And better bang from the buck for me comes from a risk based approach. Right, so it's important to manage the key risks and the critical risks on the project more than anything. But why don't we give them more attention and earn value? That was my question. Mm. Right, it's Pareto's principle, right? The 80-20 rule, right? 20% of those things drive 80%. You've been in oil and gas, you know, mm. P&ID changes have a, a, you know, huge impacts upon what's going on, right? So it's those things that we try to center on and focus on them more frequently um, and more objectively within the project, right? And that provided us better information quicker so we could get on things while they were actionable, right? That's the key, right? You got to get things while they're actionable and controllable uh, before they fester. With earned value, you tend to get a lagging indicator and if you do it, it takes three weeks to go through all this, collect all the information, put it into the system, get the feedback. And I'm talking about $50 million project or something, right? But yeah. you're three weeks later than uh, the end of the month, but probably six to, to eight weeks later than when the actual uh, incurrence of the costs or event happened, right? Mm. So you've let all that time lag and you haven't dealt with it. So, um, my feeling was with a better approach and fixing the indicators uh, to make them more objective and more um, absolute in what they were telling you and eliminate those false reads, you'd save a lot of time and energy on the project and provide better value uh, mm -hmm. those on the project. And plus the people get more excited about worrying uh, about the critical stuff and working on that and making a difference you're in project controls, you know, you want to make a difference. You want to do things. Mm. You want to find things and, and fix them. And if, if you're just processing data, you're not going to be in that role for very long. No. It's like timekeeping, right? You're just sitting there, input data. Exactly. Here's this one's data. Here's, here's the urine value. Here's the actuals, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, and I'm not sure what the, the U.S. is like, but at least in Australia, there is a bit of that. There are... Uh... We do have data entry, what I call data entry jockeys who, you know, make a living out of that. They do well, they get paid well for it these days because there is a skill shortage and, uh, and it does get mixed in with, I guess what it does is it, it, it tarnishes the brand of controls and planning what our real craft is within a project. And, um, I, I'm, if I'm hearing you right, you're saying that the real causation or the correlation is that if we, if we control, or we at least have actionable work around risk, then we can improve in performance hands down right. we make a difference the to the project that gets recognized yeah. by the project manager program manager by you know leadership yeah right. how do you deal with because i've seen organizations tr attempt this and you know we've talked about things like a risk culture a bit like safety you know safety is everyone's responsibility so is risk you know someone everyone should be involved in that same as change management in my view they should all be part of someone's role um, but they haven't done well or fared well in big organizations. So small, nimble uh, projects, fine. You know, everyone gets it. Everyone's wearing different hats. They understand that, you know, you're not just one thing. You can't be a one-trick pony on a project. You actually have to wear multiple hats depending on the day. But on the bigger projects, we're talking maybe 1,000 people, 2,000 people, 3,000 people. How do you turn the curb when the project's already kicked off and you want to build in this kind of risk focus? Yeah, how to do that. Or when you're coming into a project, and I did a lot of this turnaround projects, right? Yeah. First part is gaining trust, 
right? Mm -hmm. And I learned that from the SEAL teams, right? They, they talked about clarity of task, clarity of role, and then practice, 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 drill, 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 and then build trust within the team, right? If you build trust within the team, you're going to get more disclosure on what's going on with the project and what things are to focus on, what are the critical areas, and they're not so defensive about it uh, when you're coming into the project, right? Yeah. So then I'll ask them to focus on just these points, right? But I want them to measure them more frequently than everything else. So say you do your overall progress monthly, I want you to do earn value progress on these weekly or bi-weekly. So we can catch them early, they don't lag, we're on top of it, and we're gonna use things that you can do in Excel. You don't have to put them into the software system because half the software systems won't let you trial close you know, four times a month before you actually mm. close the month out to get a, a data date um, secured, yeah. right? So um, that's kind of the way I, I would work with them to uh, build that trust and, and get that focus on the real risk drivers on the, the project. So mm. there's, there's something I did kind of called the 12, uh, the 12, yeah, the 10 commandments. Um, and I wrote about that, and it's a risk-based approach to project controls and earn value management in that. And it's, you know, focusing on those things that will uh, really make a difference for the project and the program. And, you know, it's how to get an objective, unbiased view of things, right? And I teach the people how you do that. And really be credible. I don't care if you're liked. I want you to be credible. Because credibility is all you have in project controls, mm. right? Once you lose that, you lose the respect and, you know, you, you might as well as be the, the data in per person, right? So um, yeah. be credible, be objective, be unbiased, deliver the facts, right? That, that's the first thing. Um, be risk aware and, and risk management. You got to be risk aware and keep that a risk management throughout the life cycle of the project, right? We know we say evergreen all the time, but if you've been on projects, you know the risk register lives for about the first six weeks, maybe a month uh, later after that, but uh, it doesn't get the rigor it deserves. Um, and that's how we keep it alive. If you employ a, a program like the best value, you constantly have to look at what's contemporaneous and for the risks that are driving things now. And what are the things we're focused on there, right? Mm -hmm. As I said, you, you focus on the risk more frequently. Good planning. You can't do much on a project if you don't have a good schedule and good planning behind it, right? And then looking back historically, you know, I always advocate for planning from the back end first, right? Mm. And it's important yep. because, you know, everybody has commissioning at the end. They said, well, we'll leave four weeks for commissioning or six weeks for, for startup. And that they'll leave it at that. That's where we always get bit, right? Because, you know, there's changeovers in construction when you're going from area building to systemization and those types of looks of things. If you don't take a look at those things early, you get caught up in the end and you're late and you overrun and, and things really go awry. You run into liquidated damages and those types yeah. of things. So. It's, it's really important for me that you, you focus on those things and knowing the backstory of the data, right? We can put out a whole bunch of data, but if you don't know what the backstory is to it and how it was derived and what's actually going on in the field, you know, get out, out from behind your desk, get in the field, go talk to the supervisors, go talk to the craft guys, go Talk to the designers, talk to the engineers, learn what's going on with the project, learn what their perspective is on the project, right? Then you can take data and say, does this jive with that? Or do I need to drill in this and see if we have some issues there, right? That's valuable to me uh, as a manager to get that type of information from, from my project controls team, right? Yeah. Um, and then change, you mentioned change management. 
I got a pet peeve with chain. It's the most <laughs> important thing. You want to you want to screw up a contractor, throw a bunch of change at them, right? Because you take away their own value system right away. Unless you're mm-hmm. approving those changes rapidly and getting them into their performance measurement baseline, you're d- double whammy because you're working on scope. It was original scope you're not working on. You don't get credit for. And then you have the new work you're working on now, but you can't put it in your performance measurement baseline. So you don't get credit for that, right? So you're just burning and burning uncontrolled without the tools that you need to manage the project to know where the true root cause issues are. So I developed metrics and things for to overcome that and get a look at where you're really at with your actual performance baseline. Yeah. So it normalizes it for you because if you've ever been on a project with a ton of change, you know how chaotic it can be. And just trying to align to make sure the engineers and everybody you know, have the right information that they're working towards is one thing. Uh, but then trying to track time and, and do evaluations of progress and so on and so forth uh, is another big step. So have a system for simplifying how that works so it can be done a bit quicker. Right? Integrate that within the best value system yeah no you're you're bang on there and uh, you remind me of a project i remember we were on a rail project in the uk and you know we couldn't keep up with the amount of changes each month and so we actually had to build a report that showed the pmb plus the effective changes that have been approved plus the pending changes that have not been approved and you end up having these outsiding it was like it was a very difficult thing to manage and uh we couldn't put it into the program and, you know, it's funny because when you do talk to engineers, Rich, and you talk to senior management, they're like, just put the change in the program. How hard could it be? Well, it is hard because we don't know where it sits. We don't know the impact on the project. We don't know the risks that are associated with that. And exactly, exactly. You've got to cost load it. You've got to make sure that it aligns with the logic. Does it push any dates out? If it does, that's another conversation with a whole bunch of people. And uh, we end up going in circles. And if you, and I think it's a scaling problem as well, you know, volume. So if you have five or six of those, maybe three of them are pretty easy, right? You could probably do them. And, but those two or three, you know, you got left, they are, you know, they go around and around and then commercial gets involved and then the client gets involved and it becomes a thing. So it, it can be a very- projects that have hundreds of them up. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yep. Plans, yeah, go ahead and work on it. We're going to give you the change. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's well, hard it worse to than that. unquantified change, yeah. right? You've barely yeah. done a rough order of magnitude estimate, you know, let alone be able to definitize it enough to get it into a, a budget. Uh, it, got, it, got, it got worse than that, uh, Rich. Uh, they were approving them and the client was, uh, we were happy with it because the client was approving extra money. So for senior management, they were saying, yes, we're getting extra funding until uh, a master schedule that I was working with said, has anyone accounted for time in these? And they hadn't. They hadn't. So basically, we were absorbing the cost, which is great, but we were not extending any time. So the scope had the time was constrained by the end dates, as you said, and so the the money would have been useless because it won't help us actually do the work because we're we're focusing on two different things now. We're focusing on the new thing. We're focusing on the old thing, and they both need to be done in the same amount of time. So we just compressed the schedule by just nothing, right? And um, And it was really funny. It's not on the critical path, so we didn't put no. in a, a change. Exactly. <laughs> so we well, ended up. It could be now if you yeah. look at the impact of it. And, you know, and so I remember. Go ahead. I remember the. Uh, I was just going to say. I remember the uh, the master schedule. Older guy in his sixties, uh, Tom Shepard, uh, retired now, but um, I think it was him that came up with the acronym schedule adherence costs. And the only reason he said that because because the acronym was SAC. So he just wanted to say SAC all the time. He said, "So we need to add SAC to this and SAC to that." He was talking about a ball sack, um, but uh, you know he was just so sick and tired of the you know the the powers that be not really understanding how time and cost and uh, and and planning really works from a crafting perspective. You know he'd been on the tools, he'd been a planner for forty years, um, just understanding you know that the impacts and the, and the, the, how quickly change happens on projects and affects performance is is incredible, right? So one week uh, and three different changes could affect the entire project scope, and I think a lot of people. Don't realize how i think fragile the, the project delivery system is it it is like its own ecosystem and i think if risk and time or risk and planning are the mum and papa 
change is, is the kind of, you know, the child, the four-year-old who gets in there and makes a mess. And if you don't control that, um, you've got no schedule at the end of it. You've got no program at the end of it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you think about your projects, 40% of them are duration-based costs somewhere. in there. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big And would you say, would you say time is more important in the end? I mean, when it comes to the end of the program. I always focus more on time. Yeah. That's why, you know, I kind of built best value around that. Right. So I use a, a, a different indicator than you'd see on most earned value projects. So I do do SPI, but you know, SPI has got all kinds. You can manipulate, you can work non-critical path play uh, work, get credit for it and look like you're doing great. But if you're not working the critical path stuff, you know, in the end, it's going to bite you. So I put together something I call risk critical SBI. Uh, it's called RSBI. And it focuses on those most important tasks uh, that you identify. And that's why I'm saying keeping contemporaneous with what's going on, right? Things can come in and out of that, right? Things come in and off the critical path. And, you know, you widen that to 20% of the work. You know, it's even broader. But I think it's important to focus on those things um, and do the indicators based on those to see if you're really making progress, right? So that gets rid of the false reads and stuff you could get from not working critical bath with SPI. And SPI is worthless when you're at the last 20% of a project. It's going to go mm -hmm. to zero. It's totally worthless historically. You can look at every project. Everybody got a one and SPI, if you look back, right? Because it ends in a yeah. one. Yeah. Um, you know, I think um, there, there's been things done along that. Earned schedule is one of the things that's good. And I incorporate some of that stuff into what I do because that helps to, to validate SPI being done the right way. But one thing we don't do is we give no credit for milestones. Yeah. Milestones are pretty key on projects, right? But everything's budget-based and everything's biased by the amount of the budget, right? So that's how we attribute value to, to, to the tasks and stuff, not their risk value. And I think mm -hmm. that's interesting. And that's what I tried to change is just looking at uh, making any activity a start and an end and making a, an SPI for each. Start milestone, finish milestone, and then a duration um, SPI. So I use those factors to see how they sit within the schedule. So how, how much stuff are we cramming in the back end because these things, yep. either durations going out or the whole thing sliding out and compacting your back end. So I use those things to compile on that 20% What's my RSPI or risk critical sports, uh, sports uh, schedule performance index um, for the project to see if things are really going the right way? Take budget mm -hmm. out of it for a while. I still do it with budget, right? We still do all those things. These are some tools that we can use to get uh, a keener sense of what's actually going on with the project. Yeah, so. I completely agree. I, I'm with you there. We've had um, Walter Lipke on as well around earn schedule. Yeah, and the uh, founder of that. He's, yeah. he's the man, right? And right. Uh, it's great when he talks about it too, because, you know, it, it, he kind of stumbled upon it looking for the same thing, a value set of performance metrics that did weren't deterministic to a degree that, you know, it was the Bible. I think sometimes we get down this tricky road of earn value being the entire source of all truth. And that is the Holy gospel. And we all want to get back to one and, you know, I think uh, it is a great thing to have as a facet, but as you said, I think risk is the driving approach because it is forward-looking um, and you have that that window effectively of actionable insight where you can say, we can change the course of the project with an informed decision based on the risks and the types of mitigations or treatments that we want to do, but a lot of the time we miss them. And uh, I guess my my next question is really around the saboteurs of projects. And I don't think that I don't want to say saboteurs. I don't mean intentional saboteurs. I think people don't want to look like fools on projects. They end up doing it inevitably. But when they change things like logic, when they meddle around with risk yeah, registers, when, yeah. when they fiddle with earned value, 
how do you, what's your, you know, your seal or your uh, internal approach around dealing with that kind of behavior? We, we back check it. So everybody just okay. like you have quality checks. Yeah. Right. We have someone check the way they did the, uh, the progress update. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a right way to do them and a wrong way to do them. Tell me what's your, what's right. the right and wrong way in, in, <laughs> in light stripes. What's, what's the way? You know, first of all, it's how you build the schedule, right? you know, finish to start, you have to have good relationships built to start, right? And I, I see a lot of lags built in schedules, right? And yeah, those lags are, make it tricky to do the analysis, right? So those things fool our system. So you have to make sure that the, the schedule's built the right way. There's a lot of tools out there now that help with that, right? Uh, Primavera mm-hmm. has, has tools and um, what's the other one uh, we use? It starts with an A, and I can't remember it right now. I'm so far away from projects now. <laughs> I'm getting old. Um, yeah, that's right. But those are the types of things we look at to make sure that it's a soundly built schedule, and they're doing the right type of, of progress updates um, uh, when when they do it. Mm-hmm. So, and then our indicators. We'll do a dump down from Primavera. Uh, and then collect it all into um, our formulas and stuff that we use to do a best value evaluation of it. So I've done it for a while. <laughs> I'm in operational. Yeah. I got 30,000 yeah. other projects going on, but. Um, now there's a few there. I mean, we, we talked to someone um, about tact planning the other day. We talked about, you know, time location with Santosh Bard. We talked about, chainage and how that might work critical chain method we talked about that um even resource type methodologies where you know sometimes one of the best truths i think in terms of value performance and i don't know if you believe this as well is resource loaded programs so australia is in a bit of a crisis rich i don't know if you know this but a lot of the major projects and we're talking billions of dollars transport infrastructure projects no one is resource loading their schedules no one and I can't understand it because I used to, in the UK, use it as a force for truth. So if you had your earn value, you had your critical milestones, but your resource was, was, was peaking, I could say, well, you're not going to deliver that. You're not, you're not ramping up 300 people in the next two months. So something is wrong with driving this. driving your durations, right? Exactly, exactly. So what's the, I mean, have you ever seen, what do you do about projects that are not resource loaded? Because I see that as one of the value sets that you'd want to measure, right? It is. And, you know, it, it depends on the stage of the project it's in. I'm mm-hmm. not going to have them do it if they're, you know, 70% of the way in the project, right? But we can take these, these risk critical things and focus on those and what we can do with that. And then we look at staffing plans by discipline and so on and so forth outside of the system, right? Yeah. If it's early enough, we just have them cost load the resource load man hour load the, the, the schedule because yeah. we want to know the type of resource they need. Um, at yeah, the time they, for that task. The, the excuse back to that is it's, it's too hard or time consuming. Do you, do you believe that? Or is that a myth? Bang for the buck. You <laughs> yeah, exactly. If it's a big project, you lose it. Right. That's yeah. one way to lose it. Mm. Right. You get all your durations could be off. Right. This is a way to validate it. Right. Whether you crew load it or you, Loaded by, you know, design schedule by the engineers, the designers, um, man hours for them. It, it's it's a way to back check things, right? Does this make sense? And how do you level your schedule if you don't have it resource loaded? You, you don't. Yeah. So you, we talked about value performance. We've kind of broken it down into various different parts. But, you know, these 10 commandments, do you remember what they are? These 10 commandments, can we go through them in a bit of detail? Two. I've gone hey, through there you go. without you knowing it. So the, the first one is thou shall provide an unbiased objective view, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, thou shall keep risk management awareness throughout the project life. So the risk register example I gave, thou shalt report on critical risks with greater frequency. So the, that 20% of proto principle, let's get those focused on weekly, month, weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, whatever it be looking forward with good planning and backwards with historicals and, um, and then be, uh, be where the work is more than where your desk is. Right. Oh, I like that, that one's one. going on there. Right. That's John Holman's favorite one. I think he always talks to me about that one. It's the <laughs> things people don't do nowadays. Oh, I love that one. Yeah, it's good. Uh, 
Um, and, and now manage and report change rigorously. That I can't emphasize that one enough. And you have to have the whole team doing that, right? You can't have five engineers off doing one thing and doing the uh, taking the changes, but not reporting them. You need the whole team to report it, raise it up to the project manager or program manager so that they can assess it and at least know they're dealing with it, right? Whether it becomes internal or an, an external change. And then do more analysis, uh, more than data production, right? Know what's going on behind the numbers, research those things. Give me a presentation of what you recommend, not just a bunch of data on numbers on a report, right? That's what I look for in good project controls. And then use leading indicators and trending, right? I see a lot of statusing and less trending. Mm -hmm. And I don't get that, right? Because easier to do statusing, yeah. But that doesn't tell you what the story is, right? So I use a lot of graphs that do uh, some, I call them project storyboard um, diagrams. And it shows you kind of how it's moved within. And I use something I call a target box. I'll help okay. you try to envision this. And you got the four quadrants, cost, schedule, quality, and resources. Um, and then you have certain SP indicators for schedule, it's SBI and RSBI. And we do the correlations of those to see if everything's working in the right way and we're getting a real story out of the project and, and where it's uh, trending that way. So mm. that's a, a great one to use for, and it becomes more predictive because you can use those correlations to extrapolate uh, um, what things are driving issues and get ahead of them a, a little bit earlier, which is important. And then reduce systemic risks. And man, if you've worked projects, you know the, the number one one is, you know, the optimistic bias that goes into developing proposals and uh, into budgets and getting approved through your management. And, mm -hmm. and everybody's, oh, yeah, that will do it. We, we can get 20%. We can get whatever, right? Instead of taking, right? It's like doing your schedule without resource loading it and leveling it, right? Just putting numbers and make durations fit to whatever the client wanted, right? Yeah. That's just that optimistic, optimistic bias uh, that plagues the industry, mm. right? And, and that's why you have projects that'll blow out in the end, right? They don't have good historical basis, right? And I, I'm really big on getting a good estimate basis uh, early on so we know what we're driving it from and using proper parametrics. And it has to be recent parametrics. You gotta think about how the industry's gone over the years, right? When, when we had engineers, I don't know how it is in Australia, but in the US, engineers would, would be staff and they would bill 40 hours, but they'd work 60, 70 hours to get the things accomplished. You're doing yeah. earned value against the 40 hours thinking, Wow, we can do one drawing four hours. Yep, done. Yeah. This is what this is our now our, our benchmark, right? It's not that way now. People aren't putting in that extra diamond. Plot, you know, sometimes it, you know, if it, you have a non-exempt staff that you have to pay them time and a half, so you have to get the hours onto the timesheet. Man, it's more and more where it's all on the timesheet now, but it shows how much longer it actually took even back then to do a drawing, mm. right? And, and all that given you. time is lost now. And so old timers will say, well, we used to be able to do it with, you know, 40 hours to do this. Well, you really didn't, right? You just only yeah. paid for 40. <clears throat> that, is, that is such a good that point. that engineer you. donated the other 20, 30 hours a week. What? This is my conundrum with, and I've had this debate with many people, not online, but maybe I should get you on as well about effort versus duration and the dangers of AI. So there are companies out there looking to benchmark and I've seen some real poor, and it's not their fault. It's just, it was the time and the place and the culture. And we, we would mark off, we say, well, were you capped at 38 points, you know, hours at a, a week or, you know, 7.6 hours a day, whatever it might be. We know most projects survived or were completed because of heroic efforts of a few, right? People who were the, the ones that were staying back till 11 o'clock at night and getting up at seven. I've been one of those people. And I know for a fact, there was about a hundred of us 
you know, delivering um, one of the biggest infrastructure projects for, for optic fiber in Australia ever, $50 billion. That was a grueling project, but I guarantee you none of those hours were counted anywhere because at the time they said, in your timesheet, don't put extra hours. There's no point doing that. Just put in, you know, the standard hours. Your salary. So your salary, that's what you get paid for. That's what they care about. So from an accounting perspective, that's probably where it's been driven by. That's easy formula, right? <clears throat> but from a performance perspective, you're not getting the true picture. So then if you use that data, let's say you're building another similar project and you go, well, what do we do in the past? Because that's always a good reflector, right? That data is highly skewed and uh, it, it doesn't really add any value from my perspective. It gives you it gives you quantities, right? So you might know who, where, and when, but I don't think it justifies the effort. And uh, this comes back to risk again, because usually with risk, um, and even duration planning, like planning poker, you would you would come up with three points and you would come up with duration-based uh, or risk-based uh, duration. So you'd kind of factor in there. Well, we kind of know, or the weather's going to be X, Y. So we, we kind of can add a little bit more contingent or we probably need a different crew. So we'll change the calendar type, you know, yeah. these different strategies. Yeah. Crew variance, right? The quality mm -hmm. of the crew. It, mm. it can have a huge impact, right? If yeah. they're working yeah. on these tasks, this crew is a superstar. Uh, then you have just your regular everyday crew. You're taking metrics from both. And then the next project, you don't know what you're going to get with that, right? No. no. So what do you do with that? I mean, that, that is a performance, I mean, a value performance add, add on. Um, what do you suggest people would do with those additional hours? Should they put them somewhere? Um, talk to their manager or... You're supposed to be capturing them, right? Yeah. yeah. You, you do now. So all yeah. our systems, we have to capture them now. They may go as documented as uncompensated, right? Uncompensated. Okay. Yep. Yeah, I a, think Australia's a little bit behind the US in that regard. I think we still do the 40 hour stamping. Yeah, the federal stamp government and they, yeah. they, they made sure we yeah. do it. Yeah. But if I think maybe the government would freak out if they saw that people were putting in 60, 70 hours a week. I'm just you telling know. you, it's less and less frequent now. Though. So it? you're just not seeing that happening. Right. We're just not giving that extra time. Well, right? here's a query. When, would people underreport? Let's say they only did 30 hours instead of 40 hours a week. They probably wouldn't, right? I mean, if people weren't really putting in any effort, you wouldn't get that. So no, the minimum no, no, no. would always... It'll be 40 on the timesheet, I guarantee you. <laughs> so you'll always have a min, but we don't know what the max is. And just think about it. You know, there's there's so many variables when we're measuring these projects and performance on them, right? Resources, right? You know, you're talking about it. It's not 8.3 hours that you have in that time frame to do it. You got, I got a day in there. So if it took me four, you're going to get the report to all eight hours and I'll figure out, you know, what other things I got in there, right? Mm -hmm. But it's form fit to a set eight hours. So you're only getting so much accurate. Plus, if you need this, this certain resource for a amount of time for a certain task, and then you have a new task, you know, that's next week. What are you going to do with that person for that? You can't take them off the project put them back on the project, you're going to put them on some other thing that's not as productive, most probably, yeah. right? And all that yeah, stuff gets mixed in um, when, when you look at the uh, the parametrics and such on the project. So mm. it, it's Another question. more of an art than a science. I, I agree with you there. Um, one of the things you also mentioned was this palms up approach. What is, you know, just for the Australians or the others, uh, what does that mean uh, in your yeah, language? So you've heard of servant leadership. It, yes, it's, absolutely. It's, you know, I'm going to come with my palms up to come work with you and help you, right? I'm going to give you the resources, the tools, the systems, the processes, and the support you need to do your job. That's project, in, from a project focus, that's what I'm here to do. And that's how I look at my role. And that's how I have my project managers look at their role. They're here to, to give those people the information they need to do their jobs in the best way possible, right? Mm. And it's, what I've seen is these governance things with the palms down, right? And you have all these bureaucratic processes, procedures and things that you make them do. Uh, but it, it's more important to give them support. Everybody wants to do the right thing, right? 
they don't come into work and say, I, you know, I don't want to do my job well today. They want to do their job well. They have to have the resources and tools to do that. How many people are waiting on data and they're not getting it? That causes them to be inefficient, right? That diminishes the um, productivity of your entire uh, project, right? So those are the yeah. type of things I like to see. Uh, also, when I come into a project that's troubled, as I mentioned earlier, it's, you know, how can I help you? How can I build trust within that team? And that's mm -hmm. to come, hey, come alongside me. Here's how I'm looking at this. Help guide me on what this says. Here's how I'd look about it. And I kind of mentor and guide through the process. And I see so many come in there and try and be the hero and say, well, I'm here now. I'll fix this for you guys. I'll tell your leaders how screwed up you were um, and, and that I came and saved it for you. And then you're going to get defensive people on the project mm -hmm. team. You're not going to get the information from them um, as early or maybe not at all on what the true root causes and issues are, right? So everyone on my team is instructed to be in a frame of mind where they want to be invited back. That if you had to go back to this, you'd want to be invited back to it. That that's the way that team would think about you, right? That you were here yeah. to help and support them and uh, really make a difference for them. And building that trust. And it, it's really changed around our business now. Yeah, um, I've implemented this since 2016 here. And you can look at, you know, um, you know, when you look at margin loss and those types of things and troubled projects, we, we went from being up here to being way, way down now. It, yeah. It's something I don't worry about as, as much now. We get the yeah, I think, I think we've we got a similar way, of, similar way of working. Sorry, Rich, that, uh, you know, we, I always presume I know nothing. And um, it's because there's the story, as you said earlier on, I don't know the story behind the data. I don't know why, how we got here. I don't know why you guys are in charge of this. I don't know why we've got these problems in the project. So you have to come in at a, at a at, I'm going to use your term now, palms up approach and say, look, I'm here to help. How can I add most value while I'm here? Cause I'm here for a short period of time, you know, as consultants, Rich, we, we don't get a lot of time in there. We're expected to do a lot of great things in a very short amount of time, which is fine. We're, we're, we're happy to level up and, and have a go. Um, but it does require, you know, that, that, um, the collaboration piece, the consistency of, of leadership between various parts. And I find you, you, you do get some of that resistance straight up because you are a consultant or you are an external force. Oh, what's this guy going to do that I can't do. And, um, and it really is how you say it, not what you say. Exactly. And you'll come into teams that are already back and forth with each other, just, just at each other's throats. Right. And you have to come into that room and say, hey, you know, th this isn't about who did it, what happened. It's how we fix it and how we solve the problem, right? You have to get them in that problem solving mm -hmm. mode versus, you know, what happened, what went wrong, um, you know, whose fault was it? You have to get away from that early on or, or you'll never get there. Yeah. We, we did something similar to you. I think we, we launched a, a thing called the consultant manifesto this year, rich, which is largely around how we work with our clients, how we add value, how do we support each other? How do we can maintain ourselves to be, you know, um, highly crafted pr practitioners in our field, which means maintain that modernization, you know, keeping a, an eye on the future and what's happening in the market and in the industry. And, uh, so it's, it's interesting when you talk about your 10 commandments, I think there's a similarity there. I kind of borrowed my manifesto idea from Agile, you know, the Agile manifesto. And I said, well, I want kind of six guiding principles for my team. And I, I want them to kind of embalm that as part of their way of working um, rather than going in there thinking that they can solve everything and be the hero for the day. Cause I don't think it's good for them. And I don't think it's good for the, for the, for the brand or even for the, for the organizations that we help um, in the end. But and it's you want the same us to learn from the experience, right? And if yeah. you come alongside them and guide them and, <laughs> Joe, talk about how you're thinking about it, right? Yeah. Give them that insight, right? Well, it must come from the military experience as well as as you kind of have rubbed shoulders with, uh, you know, this whole um, leaving it better than you found it, uh, working in a, in a trusted environment, um, you know, this humility piece that comes in, you know, everyone can do anyone's job because at the end of the day, you might have to. Uh, that is a great way to think about things. And um, it just keeps everything leveled, you know, and I think that's a, 
as a great practice. Um, you know, it's almost like, a, and I also do a bit of martial arts, but I think it's almost like that as well. It's mm-hmm. like coming in, you don't know what anyone else knows. Therefore you don't know anything. <laughs> so, so it's best, it's best to maintain that, uh, that understanding and, uh, and work, as you say, with palms up. I really love that. So just back to values, I'm, I'm really pulling all this together. This has been a great podcast, but um, leadership. So how important is leadership when you come into an organization, you talk about value performance or best value performance for a project. Is that human element just as important as the other elements like risk and change and, and time? So there, there's two real things that make things go bad. Apathy is one. So mm. I, I type to say apathy is the enemy of excellence, right? It, it, if you have an apathetic project team that doesn't care and doesn't want to be involved, you're going to fail and you'll never get to excellence. So you got to listen to that team. Leadership needs to be the one that listens to that team and drives engagement. Engagement is what allows you to be successful on projects and, and look at the true driving factors and get them fixed, right? If you have, I say it this with quality, my talk is always, you can't check quality into the work, right? You think about it, you can't check it in. You can have all these review processes, process. The, the, the originator of that has to put the quality into the work in the beginning, right? And that comes through engagement. You have to have them take ownership. You know, the SEAL teams, they, they wrote that book about what, uh, uh, um, what's the ownership? It, it's, um, I, I forget, Jocko and those guys wrote the book on that, but um, extreme ownership. It, it, it's taking extreme ownership of what you're doing, right? And, and if you have that, you have that on the team, that's, uh, that's amazing and would drive success. That comes from leadership, trusting them to do that, right? And giving them the, the the resources, the tools, the systems, the processes to, to do it, right? And that's what leaders are there to provide, is Absolutely. those things. And that's how you 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 gain them um, their their trust in the system that a risk based approach will work and deliver better value for the project. Because a lot of people, why are we doing this? It seems to be extra. No, it's what will deliver. Um, the, the right value for the project in the end. Mm. So let's say, let's say, Rich, there's some people out there we've convinced um, that there are some things missing perhaps in their projects and they want to get started. Um, what can they turn to? What kind of organizations? Where are the benchmarks? Because I know project controls, I mean, you can't start from uni yet. You can't go into a degree in project controls. It's very hard to find training online that really suits the whole dynamic of that experience. Um, what would you say to some people coming into the, into the industry? There are some, I get involved with AEC. I mean, I'm on the tech board there, right? And I, yep. uh, I, I think it's an amazing organization. I think the power of the leadership there, um, and I'm not saying the formal leadership, I'm saying the um, in, informal leadership of you know, like the John Holmans that aren't on the, the board of directors, but they write amazing papers and, and do mm-hmm. amazing things and have a lot of uh, mentees right? If, if you read those things that they've written and others such as that, you'll gain a, a lot of um, learnings. Get your, uh, uh, you know, your, your planning and scheduling accreditation, you know, get your cost engineering, uh, well, we can't say cost consulting now, uh, yep. uh, certification and so on and so forth, right? Those things are, I think are invaluable. You'll still learn a lot of it on the job, but find a mentor. Uh, find a mentor within your business. I did. I had a mentor that helped me uh, through all those things. Then when I wrote the best value paper, you know, all of a sudden I had a lot of people in the hierarchy within AECE interested in, in helping me and doing more. So got me on the, the technical board and um, went on from there to learn more. But there are some good academies. Uh, you know, there's Cost Engineering Academy, I think, out in the Netherlands and some others mm-hmm. that, that do a lot of good things. And I know uh, 
Um, one out of Texas, I've done interviews with them. I can't remember. Project Controls Academy, I think, as well. Yep. Uh, they all yeah, do yeah. a lot of good things. They, there are some good educational materials. They know the right way to do it. And they work with guys like from ASC, Chris Carson, and those geniuses uh, um, that, that, that are bound in AEC to, to tap yep. into. So as we reach this retirement cliff, I think it's more and more important to tap into things like that. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's important as well to inspire the next group of, of kind of contributors, right? I mean, the, the John Holmans, the riches the you know, how many, how many more people can contribute will be determined by the next generation of project professionals. And so, you know, when we hand that mantle over, are we going to get the same level of quality and criteria and the, the dynamic of the environment is changing this built environment that we're working in now is heavily influenced uh, by technology. So will that change or improve things? Who knows? What's your view on that, by the way? technology in the space of value you, you know there's things i like about uh parts of it allows you to do more things more creative things sometimes you know um but it can be a crutch and mm -hmm. it's it's only as good as the people operating the system and that's what i see lacks right it's like planning and scheduling right you have planners are different than schedulers and schedulers to me are p6 jockeys that do the input and can do these things, but the planners are the ones that really have the knowledge of how things go and can guide a team through it, right? Versus mm -hmm. taking information. So, right. So one's a technician, one's not. They're really a, a more of a guider. Uh, yeah. Like them to the Sherpas of uh, the world, right? They guide you through yep. the processes and stuff, know the pitfalls and stuff and, and building those things. So if we lean too much on the technicians, people that are just able to get things out of systems we're going to miss the, the real key to it and what's important mm. success no i agree man i agree well look um just before you go it's been a great podcast but we do have a quick pop quiz quick fire questions five questions about no yourself math. no math no math in there no 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 math <laughs> um no references either it's all good it's very easy um are you ready sure Okay, first one, steak, seafood, or salad? Steak. Excellent. What are the three must-have behaviors you look for in successful project teams? So trust, attitude, and then aptitude. Nice, very good. What is one piece of advice for people new to the project profession? Get a mentor. Get, get involved with someone that knows it and help guide you while they're still available. Right, the, we're we're dropping off a retirement cliff here real soon, right? I only have a few more left myself. Mm -hmm. um, there, there's uh, an opportunity here to gain that knowledge, and we need to take advantage of it. If you could go back to one moment in your life, what would it be, and why? It was the decision to take that job out in the middle of the Pacific. <laughs> totally changed the dynamic of my life. Yeah. Right? Who would have known what I uh, would have done? And I actually met my wife out there. So wow. it, it was a huge change to my life from the, the loser I was before I went out there and um, the, the semi-success I've become afterwards. So that was a critical decision uh, mm. for me in life. And Fantastic. And the final one, which superpower would you choose to have for a day and why? Oh, my God. I have so many superpowers now. I don't know what I do. <laughs> I wish I was a better golfer. I don't know if that's a superpower. Yeah. I used to, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I, I used to be a decent golfer, and it's just my body's falling apart now. So I've never been a decent golfer. So if that makes you feel better, <laughs> I'm terrible at it. One of the worst sports I've. I've never mastered it, and I don't think I ever I will. But uh, I love it. It's I great. Yeah, it's a great game. Doing yep. it, I just. My body is not cooperating nowadays. Mm, I hear. Well, look, uh, is there any final thoughts before we finish up with the pod today for our listeners, Rich? No, really interesting conversation. I think if, if there'd be one thing, think about everything from a risk-based approach, mm. right? Really, really think about how important it is to focus on those things and maybe not do a lot of the superfluous things that uh, we end up doing, right? And get to the Absolutely. core of what's going on. Get things Absolutely. 
Uh, we really appreciate your time today, Rich. It has been a great conversation. I hope we can have some more. Um, but folks, that's all we have time for today. If you like what you heard, you can pay it forward by sharing a link to the episode on your favorite social media. A massive thank you to Rich Plumery and our guest for today and talking about value and performance. I really, really enjoyed that. And thank you all for listening. Till next time, we say stay safe, be disruptive, and have fun doing it. From myself, it's bye for now. Thanks for having me. Project Shadow supports and is a member of Zero Construct. Zero Construct is a new working group that wants to lower carbon construction. Not everyone will be aware, but construction contributes to around 12 to 15% of total carbon emissions. This is a staggering amount and we need to reduce it. We are a growing community of people that want to help make this change. Everyone is welcome, whether you're an engineer, contractor, or consultant. You just need to want to make a difference. Our aim is to grow a network of experts so we can all learn from each other and make a positive impact in the places where we work. We'll do this by sharing knowledge and making it accessible in engaging ways. To join us and find out more, please visit zeroconstruct.com and register as a member. Thank you, and we look forward to speaking with you soon. For more information, blogs, or to support our charities, visit projectchatterpodcast.com. And if you would like to sponsor the podcast, get in touch via our website. You can also leave us a voice message via our anchor page and let us know if there's something or someone specific that you would like on the podcast. The views, thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the participating individuals and not necessarily to the individual's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. Additionally, any views or opinions are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, or individual.